This historic letter that I hold in my hand was typed 98 years ago. Each sheet is placed in a plastic sealed envelope to protect it. Though written nearly a century ago, the words contained on these pages have a great deal of significance for us today. The year 1899 marked a jubilee celebration, the 50-year anniversary of the organization of the first Sunday School of the Church. As a culmination of that jubilee year, a time capsule in the form of a beautiful hand-carved box was filled with items considered to have meaning for those who would be present at its opening 50 years in the future. Accordingly, in 1949, the time capsule was opened, and among other historical items was this letter addressed to the General Sunday School authorities of A.D. 1949. The letter includes the following. The establishment of the first Sunday schools in the Rocky Mountains was attended with hardships and discouragements. The people were in a dry and barren land and were subjected to many privations. It required all their time and strength to secure the necessities of life. Yet, in the midst of it all, with the limited facilities at hand, they began the education of their children. The letter continues, Now, brethren, we can but dimly see what the next fifty years will do for the youth of Zion. The methods of today may be entirely abandoned for new ones to be discovered in the future. It is possible that when you receive this jubilee box, many of us whose names are signed to this greeting will have passed to the other side with the great army of Sunday School workers. And the greeting, therefore, of those of us who have gone to the great beyond will be to you as a voice from the dead. This Sunday school work has been to us a labor of love, and our interest does not merely exist for today, but extends into the future. We beseech you that whatever may be the methods employed, whatever may be the changes wrought in the fifty years to come, that you never forget for an instant the object of the great Sunday School work, that is, to teach the children the principles of the gospel of Jesus Christ, to make Latter-day Saints of them. The letter was signed by the General Sunday School Presidency, as well as 20 other board members, including Joseph F. Smith and Heber J. Grant both of whom later served as president of the Church. The letter was prophetic. Indeed, the signers may have seen only dimly what the next fifty years would bring for the youth of Zion. During that time, the communication methods of the late nineteenth century were totally replaced by tremendous advances in the dissemination of information. 
Even the typewriter used to prepare this 1899 document was at the time a recent novelty and was the cutting edge in communication. The first broadcast of the human voice was still two years away. The first radio network broadcast was 21 years in the future, and General Conference would not be transmitted over radio for another 25 years. Could the writers of this 1899 letter have imagined even dimly the technological advances, the radio, color television, computers, the Internet, or the programming that is present today, they would have been astounded to learn that just one small computer disk would contain large collections of the greatest books and talks known to mankind. They would have seen that with just a few keystrokes of the computer one could open the scriptures and with ease cross-reference them with other great talks and writings of the prophets and with the attending light and knowledge which comes from God. Sadly, they also would have seen that the very same tools that teach light and truth can, with the same ease but with different strokes of the keys, bring to view some of the most vile, sordid, wicked, and immoral material. Indeed, we have been blessed with magnificent tools and methods which can be used to assist in teaching. But, as with all tools, they are to be used with wisdom and discretion if they are to bless and simplify our lives. Just as fire under control brings so many comforts and benefits, a fire improperly used or out of control wreaks havoc and destruction. As we prepare for another fifty years, we might also see but dimly what lies ahead. We must learn to make wise use of the tools and technology that we have. Now, wise use of our technology would include care in that which we invite into our homes by the way of television, videos, computers, including the Internet. There is so much that is good and edifying in the media, but there is also much that is gross, immoral, and time-consuming, enticing us to be ever-learning and never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. During the Second World War, when gasoline was in short supply and rationed, I remember a sign saying, Is this trip necessary? Today, with ever-increasing demands on everyone and time in short supply, might we ask ourselves before we turn on the video game, the television, the computer, or access the many programs available, is this trip necessary? Perhaps every person who is listening might also ask these questions of himself or herself and expect an honest reply. Is the information I am receiving from this tool of learning edifying 
and adding truth to my life? Are the hours I'm investing an affecting use of an effective use of my valuable time? Does this computer game assist me in fulfilling my responsibilities and goals? If the answer is not a resounding yes, then we should have the courage and determination to click the off button and direct our lives to more important tasks. Despite the staggering technological advances of the past century, one of the elements of this 1899 letter still remains constant. That is the importance of well-trained, humble, and dedicated teachers. Everyone can remember a special teacher that has made a profound difference in their life. I will ever be thankful to Miss Hamilton, my second grade teacher. She was also my Sunday school teacher. I can still recall her saying, Now remember, always be a good boy. And I am so proud of you. I grew to love her, and I am sure she loved me. That school year was a glorious one. I hated to see it come to a close. The news traveled fast in the small town of Sugar City, Idaho, and one summer day my mother called me in the house to inform me of the disastrous news. My dear Miss Hamilton had gone and gotten married. <clears throat> and she didn't even check with me to see if it was all right. <clears throat> Our daughter-in-law, also a teacher, received a note at the end of the school year from one of her third-grade students. He wrote, Miss Scoresby, I will miss you more than my pet gerbil that died. <laughs> we are, in essence, a church of teachers. Regardless of life's circumstances or the nature of one's calling, all members of the Church have the opportunity to teach and to testify. The very nature of our lives bears witness of what we believe and teaches all who come within our sphere of influence. Many, perhaps most adult members of the Church, however, find themselves in a position to teach in a more direct manner. Leaders, parents, and called teachers have the specific responsibility to constantly improve their teaching abilities so they can prepare, train, and edify those who fall within their stewardship. President David O. McKay reminded us that the proper training of childhood is man's most important and sacred duty. The Lord has made it clear that parents shall teach their children to pray and rock uprightly before the Lord. There is power in the doctrines of the Church, hence the need for us all to be ever-learning and constantly fortifying ourselves spiritually. President Hinckley has said, quote, The forces against which we labor are tremendous. We need more than our own strength to cope with them. To all those who hold leadership positions, to the vast core of teachers and missionaries, to heads of family, I should like to make a plea. In all you do, feed the spirit, nourish the soul. Close quote. 
President Hinckley made that statement nearly 30 years ago at a general conference. Then how much more need have we to be spiritually fortified today? Indeed, inspired gospel teaching among all members of the Church is a lifeline of spiritual stability and growth for members of all ages. Technology will surely advance, and methods will certainly change, but the personal touch by a dedicated, loving teacher who radiates the Spirit is the key to filling the desires of the writers of this 1899 document, which was to teach the children and others the principles of the gospel of Jesus Christ, to make Latter-day Saints of them, in the name of the greatest teacher of all, even Jesus Christ. Amen. It would be difficult to imagine a more pure and perfect example of innocence than a newborn baby. We just returned from welcoming a new grandson. As I held little Benjamin, I recalled a question asked of me by the editor of a national magazine. In an interview, she inquired, How do you prepare your young people to live in the real world? Our visit reminded me that our perception of the real world, to some extent, is dependent on our experience. She and I could quickly relate to the challenges in the world, but for me, preparation for the real world has a dimension of faith that hers did not. Our discussion caused me to consider with renewed appreciation the experiences that help make faith a reality in a person's life. In order to have faith or know that we have faith, we need to have experience with faith. For little Benjamin, that experience has begun already as his mother and father join in prayer with his older brother before he is tucked into bed. As an infant, he is a witness of faith in his family. He is gaining experience. After primary a few weeks ago, our four-year-old grandson Michael reported to his parents, When I pray, my heart feels like a roasted marshmallow. (laughs) Already Michael is recognizing the feelings associated with faith. How fortunate that he is willing and able to identify and talk about his feelings with his parents. The prophet Alma described these feelings when he said, For ye know that the word hath swelled your souls, that your understanding doth begin to be enlightened. O then, is not this real? I say unto you, Yea, because it is light, and whatsoever is light is good, because it is discernible. Learning to discern the teachings of the Spirit is an important part of helping faith become a reality. My daughter Karen shared her experience. She said, When I was just a little girl, I started reading the Book of Mormon for the first time. After many days of reading, I came one night to 1 Nephi 3 and 7. I will go and do the things which the Lord hath commanded, for I know that the Lord giveth no commandments unto the children of men, save he shall prepare a way for them, that they may accomplish the thing which he commandeth them. Karen continued, I didn't know this was a famous verse, but as I read that verse, I felt strongly impressed. I was impressed that Heavenly Father would help us keep His commandments, but the deep impression was really more of a feeling. 
I had seen my parents mark verses in their scriptures with red pencils, so I got up and searched through the house until I found a red pencil. And with a great sense of solemnity and importance, I marked that verse in my own Book of Mormon. Karen continued, Over the years as I read the scriptures, that experience was repeated time and time again, reading a verse and feeling deeply impressed. In time, I came to recognize that feeling as the Holy Ghost. As a missionary, I saw others read verses and feel deeply impressed to the extent that they were willing and able to change their lives and accept the gospel." As we are learning to discern the promptings of the Spirit, there are so many distractions. At one time, President Ezra Taft Benson reminded us that the world shouts louder than the whisperings of the Holy Ghost. Each of us has to learn to be sensitive and to listen to the whisper. Years ago, a friend was being challenged as she saw the real world shouting at her family. She said, I wish we could lock our children in the temple until they turn 21. (laughs) That solution might have kept them innocent, but that is not the plan. Just as Adam and Eve had to leave the Garden of Eden, spiritual maturity requires that we have experience in this world. It is experience that helps us know good from evil. It is experience that helps us recognize the promptings of the Spirit. Experience can also help us recognize when good feelings are lacking. In the booklet, For the Strength of Youth, it states, You cannot do wrong and feel right. It is impossible. A young woman said, The past few weeks I have come back to the Church. I went to my bishop and repented, and I have been trying to live the gospel. She added, I have learned something. When I do good, I feel good. Our Heavenly Father knew we would make mistakes as we learned to make choices. He provided a Savior for us. Elder Bruce C. Hafen said, Because of the Atonement of Jesus Christ, we may learn from our experience without being condemned by our experience." End quote. We need to know how the Atonement works in our lives and how good feelings can be regained and retained when mistakes have been made. As we gain experience in this demanding real world, we sometimes fail to see the sacred nature of our seemingly routine daily tasks, fundamentals of daily living, scripture reading, prayer, family home evening, the conversation at dinner. These provide the experiences that make faith a reality. Arthur Henry King, in discussing the importance of scripture reading, wrote, Some may think that the language of the scriptures is too difficult for children, but we need to remember that the Lord has given children faculties for learning language even greater than those of adults. It is good for children to hear their favorite passages of scripture and their other favorite stories, too, over and over. We should not bring up our children to respond to the exciting, the thrilling. They are a titillation of the nerves. To be moved is one thing. To be excited or titillated a very different thing. If we bring up our children always to be wanting something new, 
they will have to have a stronger and stronger stimulus each time until they finally burst. But if we inure our children to stability, to repetition, to normal life, then they will live decent lives." End quote. The time we spend with children and youth in their growing years provides the experience that is preparation for the real world. A young man returning from his mission shared his experience with faith. He acknowledged it as a miracle in his life. He said, I was the first of six children born to my parents. My mother and father taught me when I was young the principles of the gospel. Faith was taught through the example of both my mother and father. When I was only ten years old, my father, this great example of trusting the Lord, was killed in an accident. I was young and had feelings to deal with that were new to me. This young man said he realized that he had two choices available to him. Quote, I could have become bitter towards the Lord and lost all that I now have, or I could trust the Lord. Because of the example of my parents, trust was the path I chose. Choosing faith has made all of the difference. End quote. Being a witness of the faith of young people has increased my faith. One young mother wrote, When I was 13, I knew my life was not worth living. I was living in an abusive home where there never seemed to be lasting happiness. My two best friends told me they didn't want to be friends with me anymore because I thought I was too good for them, which made no sense, but it left me feeling completely alone. As the battles in my house continued to rage, I went to my bedroom. I was so scared. I knelt and called to the one person I still knew I had. I pleaded to my Father in Heaven to somehow take me home. I said, Father, I need to be with you. I need to feel your arms around me. As I sat crying and quietly waiting in that desperate moment for Heavenly Father's arms to reach down, I heard a voice, Put your arms around yourself, and I will be with you. As I followed that prompting, I felt Heavenly Father's love assure me that I could go on, and I would go on, and I was not alone." End quote. At a difficult time, this young woman turned to Heavenly Father. Her experience made her faith stronger and more real. The reward of her faith is evident in her temple marriage and family life today. I am so thankful for leaders who encourage us to commit to experiences that help build faith. The auxiliaries of the Church are a resource to families in strengthening the faith of members. The Personal Progress Program encourages each young woman to make commitments that will help make her faith a reality. Her choices invite her to make a commitment, carry it out, and report to someone. It is the process of progress. It is very much the same process we go through as we accept callings in the Church. Make a commitment, carry it out, and report to someone. One of the miracles of the restoration of the gospel and the organization of the Church in these latter days is that the plan allows the growth and the change to come to the members. We each have available to us 
the experience that will help us change to become spiritually mature. Through our own repeated efforts, our faith can become a reality. May I, in concluding my service, express my love and appreciation to the many who have counseled and supported me, the First Presidency, priesthood leaders, the other auxiliary leaders, my counselors, past and present, the Young Women General Board, and the Young Women staff are magnificent women. Women of faith, wherever they serve, their names will be known for good. I express my gratitude to my Heavenly Father for my experience here. In the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, amen. A few years ago, I showed one of my senior brethren a talk I had prepared for future delivery. He returned it with a stimulating two-word comment, Therefore, what? <laughs> the talk was incomplete because it omitted a vital element, what a listener should do. I'd failed to follow the example of King Benjamin, who concluded an important message by saying, and now, if you believe all these things, see that ye do them. For many months, we have studied the lives and accomplishments of our pioneers, early and modern. We have thrilled to some modern reenactments in which many have been blessed to participate. I was humbled to walk in the footsteps and wagon trails of my 31 pioneer ancestors for 13 miles over the Wyoming Heights called Rocky Ridge, and for five miles on the trail three of them later followed down El Cajon Pass to settle what is now San Bernardino, California. Now, after all these studies and activities, it is appropriate to ask ourselves, therefore, what? Are these pioneer celebrations academic? merely increasing our fund of experiences and knowledge, or will they have a profound impact on how we live our lives? This question applies to all of us. As President Hinckley reminded us last April, whether you are among the posterity of the pioneers or whether you were baptized only yesterday, each is the beneficiary of their great undertaking. All of us enjoy the blessings of their efforts, and all of us have the responsibilities which go with that heritage. It is not enough to study or reenact the accomplishments of our pioneers. We need to identify the great eternal principles they applied to achieve all they achieved for our benefit and to apply those principles to the challenges of our day. In that way, we honor their pioneering efforts, and we also reaffirm our heritage and strengthen its capacity to bless our own posterity and those millions of our Heavenly Father's children who have yet to hear and accept the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are all pioneers in doing so. Many of our challenges are different from those faced by former pioneers but perhaps just as dangerous and surely as significant to our own salvation and the salvation of those who follow us. For example, as for life-threatening obstacles, 
The wolves that prowled around pioneer settlements were no more dangerous to their children than the drug dealers or pornographers who threaten our children. Similarly, the early pioneers' physical hunger posed no greater threat to their well-being than the spiritual hunger experienced by many in our day. The children of earlier pioneers were required to do incredibly hard physical work to survive their environment. That was no greater challenge than many of our young people now face from the absence of hard work, which results in spiritually corrosive challenges to discipline, responsibility, and self-worth. Jesus taught, And fear not them which kill the body but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. The foremost quality of our pioneers was faith. With faith in God, they did what every pioneer does. They stepped forward into the unknown, a new religion, a new land, a new way of doing things. With faith in their leaders and in one another, they stood fast against formidable opposition. When their leaders said, This is the right place, they trusted and they stayed. When other leaders said, Do it this way, they followed in faith. Two companion qualities evident in the lives of our pioneers, early and modern, are unselfishness and sacrifice. Our Utah pioneers excelled at putting the general welfare and community goals over individual gain and personal ambition. That same quality is evident in the conversion stories of modern pioneers. Upon receiving a testimony of the truth of the restored gospel, they have unhesitatingly sacrificed all that was required to assure that its blessings will be available to their children and to generations unborn. Some have sold all their property to travel to a temple. Some have lost employment. Many have lost friends. Some have even lost parents and extended family as new converts have been disowned for their faith. This must be the greatest sacrifice of all. Here we recall the Savior's teaching, For I am come to set a man at variance against his father, and the daughter against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. We praise what the pioneers' unselfishness and sacrifice have done for us, but that is not enough. We should also assure that these same qualities are guiding principles for each of us as we have opportunities to sacrifice for our nations, our families, our quorum, our members, and our Church. This is especially important in societies that have exalted personal interest and individual rights to the point where these values seem to erase the principles of individual responsibility and sacrifice. Other great qualities in our early pioneers were obedience, unity, and cooperation. We have all thrilled at the example of the saints who responded to Brigham Young's call to rescue the stranded handcart companies 
or to pull up roots in settled communities and apply their talents and lives to colonizing new areas. Our people have always been characterized by their loyalty and obedience to the direction of their leaders, by their unity, and by their extraordinary capacity to cooperate in a common venture. We see the modern manifestations of these pioneer qualities in the great contributions our brothers and sisters make in a wide variety of private projects and common efforts that require unity and cooperation. Another modern manifestation of Mormon obedience, unity, and cooperation is our unique missionary program, from the preparation and service of young missionaries to the remarkably diverse activities of mature couples throughout the world. Our recent Worldwide Pioneer Heritage Service Day, where Church members contributed more than two million hours of service to their local communities, provides visible evidence that the pioneer qualities of obedience, unity, and cooperation live on in our day. In this and the other examples given, I hope we are not too satisfied with an annual demonstration, with a single demonstration, but will practice these pioneer principles all the days of our lives as individuals, as families, as Church organizations, and as citizens. In a day when our Prophet has challenged us to reach out to welcome and fellowship new members and to reawaken the faith and fellowship of those who have strayed, we can gain strength from the example of the pioneers. The pioneer legacy was one of inclusion. When the Saints were driven out of Missouri, many were so poor that they lacked teams and wagons to move. Their Church leaders were adamant that none of the poor would be left behind. The response was the same in the Exodus from Nauvoo. At a conference of the Church in October 1845, the membership entered into a covenant to take all the Saints with them. Thereafter, in the initial epic struggle across Iowa, the companies that arrived first at their stopping place on the Missouri River sent rescue wagons back toward Nauvoo to gather those who had been too poor to leave earlier. The revelation that guided their next exodus on the trip west directed each company to bear an equal proportion in taking the poor, the widows, the fatherless, and the families of those who have gone into the army. When the wagons and handcarts moved west, their movement was always one of inclusion and no day's journey ended until every straggler was accounted for. When the saints settled in the valleys of the mountains, they promptly established a perpetual emigrating fund to assist the poor to move from winter quarters and later from the nations of Europe. At least half of those who journeyed to join the saints could not have come without the help of leaders and members who were determined to include everyone who desired to gather to Zion. We need that same spirit of inclusion to accomplish our Prophet's clarion call for retention and reactivation. Another great pioneer virtue was their commitment to one another, to their leaders, and to their faith. We honor that quality in the words of these favorite hymns. Firm as the mountains around us, stalwart and brave, we stand on the rock our fathers planted for us in this goodly land. 
the rock of honor and virtue, of faith in the living God. They raised his banner triumphant over the desert sod. And we hear the desert singing, carry on, carry on, carry on. True to the faith that our parents have cherished, true to the truth for which martyrs have perished, to God's command, soul, heart, and hand, faithful and true, we will ever stand. What does it mean to be true to the faith? That word true implies commitment, integrity, endurance, and courage. It reminds us of the Book of Mormon's description of the 2,000 young warriors, and they were all exceedingly valiant for courage and also for strength and activity. But behold, this was not all. They were men who were true at all times in whatsoever thing they were entrusted. Yea, they were men of truth and soberness. For they had been taught to keep the commandments of God and to walk uprightly before Him. In the spirit of that description, I say to our returned missionaries, men and women who have made covenants to serve the Lord and who have already served Him in the great work of proclaiming the gospel and perfecting the saints, are you being true to the faith? Do you have the faith and continuing commitment to demonstrate the principles of the gospel in your own lives consistently? You have served well, but do you, like the pioneers, have the courage and the consistency to be true to the faith and to endure to the end? Here I recall a pioneer example of faith, commitment, and courage by some young men just about the age of our missionaries. A few months before the Prophet Joseph Smith was murdered at Carthage, some of his enemies plotted to kill him. As part of their plan, they sought to enlist others in their conspiracy. Among those they invited to a meeting in Nauvoo were two young men still in their teens, Robert Scott and Denison L. Harris. Denison's father, Emer, was the older brother of Martin Harris, one of the three witnesses to the Book of Mormon. Being loyal to the Prophet, these young men immediately reported the invitation to Denison's father, who advised the Prophet Joseph and sought his advice. Joseph asked Emer Harris to request that the young men attend the meeting, pay strict attention to what was said, make no commitments, and report the entire matter to the Prophet. As events proceeded, there were three meetings. They began by denouncing Joseph as a fallen prophet proceeded to considering how Joseph could be overthrown, and concluded with specific planning to kill him. All of this the two young men reported to the Prophet Joseph after each meeting. Before the third meeting, the Prophet foresaw what would happen and told the young men this would be the last meeting. He warned them that the conspirators might kill them when they refused the required oath to participate in the murderous scheme. He said he did not think the conspirators would shed their blood because they were so young, but he called upon their loyalty and courage in these words, Don't flinch. If you have to die, die like men. You will be martyrs to the cause, and your crowns can be no greater. He renewed his original caution that they should not make any promises or enter into any covenants with the conspirators. Then he blessed them and expressed his love for their willingness to risk their lives for him. 
As Joseph had foreseen, the third and final meeting required all present to unite in a solemn oath to destroy Joseph Smith. When the two boys refused, explaining that Joseph had never harmed them and they were unwilling to participate in his destruction, the leaders declared that since the boys knew the group's plans, they must agree to join them or they must die on the spot. Knives were drawn. Some protested killing the boys, especially since their parents knew of their presence, so their failure to return would cast suspicion on some of the conspirators. By the barest margin, the cautious course was chosen, and those who opposed killing prevailed. The boys were threatened with certain death if they ever revealed what had transpired in the meetings or who had participated, and they were then allowed to leave unharmed. As the boys passed beyond the view of the guards, they were met by the prophet, who was anxiously watching and praying for their safe return. They reported everything to him. He thanked and praised them, and then, for their safety, counseled them not to speak of this to anyone for twenty years or more. The faith, commitment, and courage of these young men is an example to all of us. These pioneer qualities and the others I have mentioned—integrity, inclusion, cooperation, unity, unselfishness, sacrifice, and obedience—are as vital today as when they guided the actions of our pioneer forebears, early and modern. To honor those pioneers, we must honor and act upon the eternal principles that guided their actions. As President Hinckley reminded us last April, we honor best those who have gone before when we serve well in the cause of truth. That cause of truth is the cause of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, whose servants they were and whose servants we should strive to be. I testify of this and pray that we, too, may be true to the faith that our parents have cherished. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. I have prayed for the Spirit of the Lord and all the faith necessary that I might be able to say to you this afternoon a few words that are in my heart that might encourage you in some way in your believing and living the principles of the gospel. This morning we heard from President Hinckley one of the most stirring outlines of Church for Our Future that I remember hearing. I was very moved by it. In just imagining and visualizing what lies ahead of us, and I know that's all to be true, what he is saying. As we've had the opportunity to work with him for these some years now, and the feel of his spirit, his understanding, his desire, his deep faith, and the inspiration that comes to him and in that office, I knew this morning that we were hearing words of the future from our prophet. And as I now reflect upon the, the cycle of life and 
And as that, that cycle moves forward, and as I get a little older, <clears throat> and as our faculties aren't quite as sharp as they used to be, with our vision and other faculties we would like to have, and as I think of what lies ahead for the Church, I feel a little like the Britisher who said, wouldn't it be nice to roll things back 50 years and have another go at it? <laughs> and even though I've had the opportunity to declare and teach and preach and bear witness of the, of the Savior worldwide, I would like to have all the time, of course, that it's allotted, and, that, and of course that will happen. As we listen to the strains of Come, Come, Ye Saints, my first opportunity to really become acquainted with Come, Come, Ye Saints was a little stone tabernacle lot in southern Idaho where I grew up as a boy. And in that little tabernacle built out of lava rock by the local members of the church back in the 18, late 1880s, in that tabernacle, there was a stand, a podium, similar to what we have here, but of course a small one. And then a pipe organ in the back of the, like we have here, and this beautiful pipe organ. But there was a little one out in that little meeting house. And this was before elect or that tabernacle, and this was before electricity. And the way to get power into the bellows in there to have the organ, it had a pump system, and there was a big lever at the back of the organ where someone would sit on a stool and would pump that lever up and down, and that would put the air in there to make it happen. And it was always a great privilege to be selected as a young man to have the privilege of sitting on that stool and pumping the organ. That was a special calling. But in that little tabernacle, when they, we would sing, Come, Come, Ye Saints, I would feel the, the, the roof starting to lift off that building. You could feel it because of the power and the faith and the testimony and the belief of the members. And in that little tabernacle where we would have ironic priesthood choruses and boys where we'd learn to sing, and it was there that we would sing, For I'm a Mormon boy. I do, we don't hear that much anymore. I wish we would. I'm a Mormon boy. I'm a Mormon boy. Um, even, oh, we might be envied by a king, for I'm a Mormon boy. Just think of that one for a second. And that made a great impression upon me, for I might be envied by a king. Here's a king with all the power, with all the pomp, all of the wealth that the king would have. But I was beginning to learn that we would hold, as members of the Church, blessings, priesthood blessings, knowledge, information that the King would know about. But little songs of that kind would, would make a great impression upon us, and it upon me, to even be envied by a King, for I'm a Mormon boy. As you were listening to this beautiful rendition by the choir, I was thinking of William Clayton. He was baptized into the church in Lancashire in England, 23 years old. His father was a teacher, and he had received a good education. He was a good penman. 
He was good with figures, and he was good at writing and keeping records. But he was baptized by Heber C. Kimball and some going through that area at that time in the early days of the Church in England, 23 years old. They understood and accepted him readily because of his education and his penmanship, and he was just a bright young fellow. And soon he was being used as a secretary and a scribe or as a bookkeeper by the, by the little organization of the church over there. But by the time he was 24, he and his wife wanted to go to Nauvoo, and so they sailed for America. And in Nauvoo, he met the prophet, and he met other leaders of the church. And they used him in interesting ways again because he wrote a beautiful hand. He was a good speller. He was good with figures, and so they could use a young man of that kind. And so, but after the martyrdom of the prophet, he sided with Brigham Young and the Twelve and became one of their scribes and the secretary and treasurer of the organizations. But then in, after the martyrdom of the prophet and the decision was made to move west and into the mountains, he left with, that, with the Brigham Young Company and was out in Iowa and had the experience that brought about the need and the writing of this wonderful song that we have today. And so in their discouragement, they left in February. It is now April. And out in Iowa, in going through the fields with the wagons and the horses and the teams and the rain and the mud, they were somewhat discouraged. And the going was difficult, and people were dying on the way. Babies had been born, but they were going slow, only making a few miles a day, if sometimes hardly any. And in that discouragement that was sort of settling with some of them, William Clayton wrote in his journal that he sat out on the wagon tongue one day and that he had written a song, hoping that that song would be of some encouragement and giving some hope and faith to the saints out on that, out on that trail in, their, in that period of discouragement that they had. And so he wrote, Come, come, ye saints, no toil nor labor fear. It's tough going out here. They were discouraged. But with joy wend your way. And though hard to you this journey may appear, great shall be as your day. And giving him encouragement to go, go ahead and this will all work out. And then, of course, those wonderful lines that he wrote to and we'll find the place which God for us prepared far away in the hills. And even though they're stuck there in the mud and discouraged, this will, this will all change. And if we have the courage and the faith and the answer to the, the Lord will answer our prayers, it will all come about. And it gave them the hope and the encouragement. And we'll find a place which God for us prepared far away where none shall come to hurt or make afraid. Beautiful words, as, as, as he was able to put it together. 
And then that last hymn, that, the last verse that they sang so beautifully this morning. And if our lives, and if we should die before our journey's through, happy day, all is well. And so if you die, we've done our best. And we're going to die sometime, I guess we'd say, as we all know. And so happy day, all is well. But if, but if our lives are spared again, to see the saints their rest obtain. See if the wagon wheels will stay on, and if the rims will stay on the little handcarts, and if we can keep up that courage and the strength, and through our prayers, and if we get there, and if we get there. So he said, and if our lives are spared again, to see the saints their rest obtain. If we get there, then we'll make it work. Then he said, then all is well, all is well, if we get there and if we have the courage to make it work. And in his journal he wrote, I've written a little song entitled, All is Well, All is Well. I like to think of the song after I found that information, that really it's a song about all is well if we're able to live as we should, if we do the things that we should do. We have the, we have the outline. We have the procedures. We have the information. But if we can get there and our lives are spared again, then we'll be able to sing all is well, all is well. And so the first title to that little song, which has become sort of our national anthem is all is, of course, but the, the title he wrote was All Is Well, All Is Well. And so on this 150th anniversary of that great event which President Hinckley alluded to this morning, I want to add my congratulations to the committee who under the appointment of the First Presidency were able to put together that marvelous celebration of the 150th anniversary, which has gone all over the world. Well, as you know, of wards and stakes doing things in special ways all over the world to help bring this about, to bring about the celebration. And I have as part of my own heritage the fact that my grandfather, Horton David Haight, was 15 when they arrived in the Valley in that second company, the company following the Brigham Young Company. He was 15, so he would have walked across the plains. And so when we sing Faith in Every Footstep, I have a grandfather that I know did that. So at 15, you were not riding in the wagon. You were out where the action was, along with the hitting the horses and the oxen and whatever would need to be done. And then my grand, the girl that he married, Louisa Levitt. She turned 11 when they arrived in the valley, and so grandmother would have walked across also. And so with that great heritage, I am saying to all of you, what a wonderful year this has been, and what a wonderful future we have for the Church, as has been outlined by our prophet this morning. But all of, this, all of these things are dependent upon how we live, 
and how we accept the truths that we know about and how we live the principles of the gospel and what kind of an examples we come that we become to those people we work with and that those that we associate with. When I was a young fellow, about 12 years old, I loved to play baseball. And the only piece of athletic equipment that we had around our house was an old baseball mitt. We didn't have footballs in those days. Football hadn't been invented. We didn't have a lot of other things. But anyway, uh, I thought the great moment that would be in my life would be that I would be playing uh, baseball for the New York Yankees. And this was back in the days when the Yankees were a great team. But I would be, I would be playing for them. We'd be in the World Series. The score would be, the games would be three and three. We're in the deciding game. Guess who would get up to bat? that I would get up to bat and the pitcher would put the ball in just exactly where I would want it and I'd knock it out of the Yankee Stadium. And I would become the hero of the World Series and I thought that will become, that must be, would be the great moment of my life. But I want you to know that that isn't true. A few years ago, I sat in the little, in the Los Angeles temple in a little ceiling room with my wife, Ruby. And we had our sons there with their wives They've been married just for a short time. And our baby daughter was kneeling, was kneeling at the altar holding the hand of a young man she was to be sealed to. And as I looked around the room, I then realized that this was the great moment of my life because I had in that room everything that was precious to me, everything. My wife was there, my eternal sweetheart and companion. Our three children were there with their companions. And I thought, David, in your youth, you had things all wrong. You thought some event of some kind might be the great event of your life. But I was witnessing it. I was there. I was feeling it. I felt a part of it. And I knew in that little white ceiling room, clean, sweet, pure in that room, with all of my family there, that this was the great moment of my life. I leave you my love, my witness, that this work is true. As Latter-day Saints, we need to be true to faith, to the faith that we profess, true to it. We need to be true to the wonderful testimonies that we have been given. And we need to be true to him whose name we have taken and to so live and declare and to help in the spreading of this work in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Elders Harold G. Hillam of the Presidency of the Seventy and Jeffrey R. Holland of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles have spoken to us, followed by the choir singing, How Lovely Are the Messengers. Following my remarks, the Tabernacle Choir will sing, I Know My Father Lives. A benediction will then be offered by Elder Richard E. Turley, Sr. of the Seventy. The concluding session of this conference will begin at 2 o'clock this afternoon. 
It now becomes my privilege and pleasure to speak to you. I hope you can hold on a few minutes longer. The celebrations of 1997 are largely over. The last wagon has rolled to a stop. The last handcart has come to rest. We've had a wonderful year when we've commemorated the great migration of our forebears to these western valleys. We have bowed in remembrance of their sacrifices, the many who died along the way and who were lovingly placed in graves whose location we know not. We have shared to a very small degree the terrible suffering of those caught in the Wyoming snows of 1856. We have seen the fulfillment of Isaiah's promise. The wilderness and the solitary place shall be glad for them, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. We cannot detract from their accomplishments. We cannot add to their glory. We can only look back with reverence, appreciation, respect, and resolution to build on what they have done. The time has now come to turn about and face the future. This is a season of a thousand opportunities. It is ours to grasp and move forward. What a wonderful time it is for each of us to do his or her small part in moving the work of the Lord on its magnificent destiny. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world as a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. Something, my brethren and sisters, is happening in this Church, something wonderful. As we walk in the small world of our individual wards and branches, we are scarcely aware of it. And yet it is real and it is tremendous. We are growing. We are expanding. Enough people will come into the Church this year to constitute more than 600 new wards or branches. A month from now, we will reach the 10 million mark in membership. It took over a century, 117 years, from the organization of the Church in 1830 to 1947 to reach 1 million. More of our members now live outside the U.S. than in the U.S. We have been out among our people. It has been glorious to meet with them, to speak with them, to share testimonies with them. They are enthusiastic. We were recently with the Navajo Nation at Window Rock in Arizona. It was the first time that a president of the Church had met with and spoken to them in their capital. It was difficult to hold back the tears as we mingled with these sons and daughters of Father Lehi. In my imagination, I have seen him weeping for his progeny who for so long have walked in poverty and pain. But the shackles of darkness are falling. Some of them now are men and women of achievement. They have partaken of the fruits of education. They have come to know and love the gospel. They have become pure and delightsome. But there is so much more to do among them. Alcohol and drugs literally destroy many of them. We must do more to help. As I look to the future, I envision the Spirit of the Lord being poured out upon these people. Education will unlock the door of opportunity. 
and the gospel will bring new light and understanding into their lives. We have been with thousands of these wonderful people in South America. We recently flew from Asuncion, Paraguay to Guayaquil, Ecuador, over the high and forbidding peaks and narrow valleys of that vast area. Everywhere there were Indian villages and small cities. Our missionaries are working with these good people, bringing the light of the everlasting gospel into their lives. Many years ago, Sister Hinckley and I took the little train that runs from Cusco, Peru, to Puno on Lake Titicaca. In Puno, we met with a little handful of Native members, the first general authority ever to do so. Today, we have two stakes of Zion in Puno, their stake presidents and bishops drawn from their number. We have now been in all the nations of South America and Central America, and we have seen miracles with great gatherings of 30,000, 40,000, and 50,000 in football stadiums. These are all Latter-day Saints. In each case, as we left, there was a great waving of handkerchiefs with tears in their eyes and tears in ours. In the nation of Brazil alone, there will be approximately 50,000 people join the Church this year. That is the equivalent of 16 or 17 new stakes in just 12 months. The Sao Paulo Temple cannot accommodate all who wish to come. We are building three new temples in that nation and will yet have to build others. These are strong and wonderful Latter-day Saints in whose hearts beat the same testimonies of Jesus and this work as beat in yours. We must construct meeting houses by the score to accommodate the needs of these ever-increasing numbers. I stand in amazement knowing the history of this Church when I realize there is not a city in the United States of Canada or Canada of any consequence which does not have a Latter-day Saint congregation. It is the same in Mexico. It is the same in Central and South America, likewise in New Zealand and Australia, in the islands of the sea, and in Japan, Korea, Taiwan, the Philippines. In Europe, our congregations are everywhere. What a remarkable thing it is to contemplate that each Sabbath there are more than 24,000 wards and branches across the world in which the same lessons are taught and the same testimonies are born. Now what of the future? What of the years that lie ahead? It looks promising indeed. People are beginning to see us for what we are and for the values we espouse. The media generally treat us well. We enjoy a good reputation for which we are grateful. If we will go forward, never losing sight of our goal, speaking ill of no one, living the great principles we know to be true, this cause will roll on in majesty and power to fill the earth. Doors now closed to the preaching of the gospel will be opened. The Almighty, if necessary, 
may have to shake the nations to humble them and cause them to listen to the servants of the living God. Whatever is needed will come to pass. The great challenges facing us and the key to the success of the work will be the faith of all those who call themselves Latter-day Saints. Our standards are certain and unequivocal. We need not quibble about them. We need not rationalize them. They are set forth in the Decalogue, written by the finger of the Lord on Mount Sinai. They are found in the Sermon on the Mount, spoken by the Lord Himself. They are found elsewhere in His teachings, and they are found plainly set forth in the words of modern revelation. From the beginning, these have served as our code of conduct. They must continue to so serve. The future will be essentially the same as the past, only much brighter and greatly enlarged. We must continue to reach out across the world, teaching the gospel at home and abroad. A divine mandate rests heavily upon us. We cannot run from it. We cannot avoid it declared the risen Lord to those he loved, Go ye into all the world, and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. The figure of Moroni, atop many of our temples, is a constant reminder of the vision of John the Revelator. And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God, and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment is come, and worship Him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. There must be no diminution in our effort to carry the gospel to the people of the earth. In the future, even more of our young men must prepare themselves to go out in the service of the Lord. Our Christian acts must precede them and accompany them wherever necessary. I am grateful for the humanitarian aid we have been able to extend to the poor and the unfortunate. This very day, hungry children are eating food in North Korea because of the aid which you have sent. <coughs> in a world where there is so much of hunger and suffering, where death walks hand in hand with little children, we must continue and enlarge our efforts, not permitting politics or other factors to hold back the hand of mercy. As we look to the future, we must extend the great work carried forward in the temples, both for the living and the dead. If this people cannot be saved without their dead, as the Prophet Joseph declared, then we must make it possible for many more to accomplish this work. We now have 50 operating temples. We need twice that number. And as I explained last evening, we have in place a program to reach that goal to accommodate the needs of the people. 
those on the other side who are not dead but who are alive as to the Spirit will rejoice and be made glad as they awaken and go forward on their way to immortality and eternal life. But there are many other things we must do as we move forward the work to a new and promising century. Simply put, we must be better Latter-day Saints. We must be more neighborly. We cannot live in a cloistered existence in this world. We are a part of the whole of humanity. A lawyer cometh unto Jesus, asking, Master, what is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Let us love the Lord, yes, with all our strength and power, and let us also love our neighbors. Let us banish from our lives any elements of self-righteousness. Many regard us with suspicion as having only one interest, and that is to convert them. Conversion is more likely to come as a consequence of love. Let us be friendly. Let us be helpful. Let us live the golden rule. Let us be neighbors, neighbors of whom it might be said, he or she was the best neighbor I ever had. As we move forward into a wonderful future, there are what some may regard as the lesser commandments, but which are also of such tremendous importance. I mention the Sabbath day. The Sabbath of the Lord is becoming the play day of the people. It is a day of golf and football on television, of buying and selling in our stores and markets. Are we moving to mainstream America, as some observers believe? In this, I fear we are. What a telling thing it is to see the parking lots of the markets filled on Sunday in communities that are predominantly LDS. Our strength for the future, our resolution to grow the Church across the world, will be weakened if we violate the will of the Lord in this important matter. He has so very, very clearly spoken anciently and again in modern revelation. We cannot disregard with impunity that which He has said. We must observe the word of wisdom as we read our newspapers, as we watch the television news. These remarkable words, first spoken in 1833, come to life before our very eyes. Quote, In consequence of evils and designs which do and will exist in the hearts of conspiring men in the last days, I have warned you and forewarned you. Close quote. People are becoming increasingly health-conscious. We have a running start on the world, a code so simple and easily understood. 
Not long ago, I met Dr. James E. Enstrom of the University of California at Los Angeles. He's not a member of the Church. He speaks with complete objectivity. His studies indicate that, actuarially speaking, Latter-day Saints live about ten years longer than their peers. Who can set a price on ten years of life? What a remarkable and wonderful blessing is this word of wisdom. Reporters whom I have met simply cannot believe that we pay 10 percent of our income as tithing. I explain that this is a spiritual phenomenon. We pay because we are obedient to the commandment of the Lord. We pay because we have faith in His munificent promises. Let us teach our children while they are yet young of the great opportunity and responsibility of paying tithing. If we do so, there will be another generation and yet another who will walk in the ways of the Lord and merit His promised blessing. Perhaps our greatest concern is with families, the families falling apart all over the world. The old ties that bound together father and mother and children are breaking everywhere. We must face this in our own midst. There are too many broken homes among our own. The love that led to marriage somehow evaporates and hatred fills its place. Hearts are broken. Children weep. Can we not do better? Of course we can. It is selfishness that brings about most of these tragedies. If there is forbearance, if there is forgiveness, if there is an anxious looking after the happiness of one's companion, then love will flourish and blossom. As I look to the future, I see little to feel enthusiastic about concerning the family in America and across the world. Drugs and alcohol are taking a terrible toll which is not likely to decrease. Harsh language, one to another, indifference to the needs of one another, all seem to be increasing. There is so much of child abuse. There is so much of spouse abuse. There is growing abuse of the elderly. All of this will happen and get worse unless there is an underlying acknowledgment Yes, a strong and fervent conviction concerning the fact that the family is an instrument of the Almighty. It is His creation. It is also the basic unit of society. I lift a warning voice to our people. We have moved too far toward the mainstream of society in this matter. Now, of course, there are good families. There are good families everywhere. But there are too many who are in trouble. There is a malady with a cure. The prescription is simple and wonderfully effective. It is love. It is plain, simple, everyday love and respect. It is a tender plant that needs nurturing, but it is worth all of the effort we can put into it. Now, in closing, I see a wonderful future in a very uncertain world. If we will cling to our values, if we will build on our inheritance, if we will walk in obedience before the Lord, 
If we will simply live the gospel, we will be blessed in a magnificent and wonderful way. We will be looked upon as a peculiar people who found the key to a peculiar happiness. And many people shall go and say, Come ye, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Great has been our past. Wonderful is our present. Glorious can be our future. Arise, O glorious Zion, thou joy of latter days, whom countless saints rely on to gain a resting place. Arise and shine in splendor amid the world's deep night, for God, thy sure defender, is now thy life and light. We have glimpsed the future. We know the way. We have the truth. God, help us to move forward, to become a great and mighty people, spread over the earth, counted in the millions, but all of one faith and of one testimony and of one conviction. I humbly pray in the name of our great Redeemer and Savior, even Jesus Christ, Amen. Some time ago, I read an essay referring to metaphysical hunger in the world. The author was suggesting that the souls of men and women were dying, so to speak, from lack of spiritual nourishment in our time. That phrase, metaphysical hunger, came back to me last month when I read the many richly deserved tributes paid to Mother Teresa of Calcutta. One correspondent recalled her saying that as severe and wrenching as physical hunger was in our day, something she spent virtually her entire life trying to alleviate, nevertheless she believed that the absence of spiritual strength, the paucity of spiritual nutrition, was an even more terrible hunger in the modern world. These observations reminded me of the chilling prophecy from the prophet Amos, who said so long ago, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord God, that I will send a famine in the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the word of the Lord. As the world slouches toward the 21st century, many long for something, sometimes cry out for something but too often scarcely know for what. The economic condition in the world, speaking generally and certainly not specifically, is probably better than it has ever been in history. But the human heart is still anxious and often filled with great stress. We live in an information age that has a world of data available literally at our fingertips. Yet the meaning of that information and the satisfaction of using knowledge in some moral context seems farther away for many than ever before. The price for building on such sandy foundations is high. Too many lives are buckling when the storms come and the winds blow. 
In almost every direction we see those who are dissatisfied with present luxuries because of a gnawing fear that others somewhere have more of them. In a world desperately in need of moral leadership, too often we see what Paul called spiritual wickedness in high places. In an absolutely terrifying way, we see legions who say they are bored with their spouses, their children, and any sense of marital or parental responsibility toward them. Still others, roaring full speed down the dead-end road of hedonism, shout that they will indeed live by bread alone, and the more of it the better. We have it on good word—indeed, we have it from the Word Himself—that bread alone, even a lot of it, is not enough. During the Savior's Galilean ministry, He chided those who had heard of Him feeding the five thousand with only five barley loaves and two fishes, and now flocked to Him expecting a free lunch. That food, important as it was, was incidental to the real nourishment He was trying to give them. Your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead, He admonished them. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. But this was not the meal they had come for. And the record says, From that time many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. In that little story is something of the danger in our day. It is in that our contemporary success and sophistication, we too may walk away from the vitally crucial bread of eternal life. We may actually choose to be spiritually malnourished, willfully indulging in a kind of spiritual anorexia. Like those childish Galileans of old, we may turn up our noses when divine sustenance is placed before us. Of course, the tragedy then as now is that one day, as the Lord Himself has said, in an hour when ye think not, the summer shall be past and the harvest ended, and we will find that our souls are not saved. I've wondered this morning if someone within the sound of my voice might feel he or she or those they love are too caught up in the thick of these thin things are hungering for something more substantial, and asking with the otherwise successful young man of the scriptures, what lack I yet? I've wondered if someone this morning might be wandering from sea to sea, running to and fro, as the prophet Amos said, wearied by the pace of life in the fast lane or in trying to keep up with the Joneses before the Joneses refinance. I've wondered if any have joined our conference hoping to find the answer to a deeply personal problem or to have some light cast on the most serious questions of their heart. Such problems or questions often deal with our marriages, our families, our friends, our health, our peace, or the conspicuous lack of such cherished possessions. It is to those who so hunger that I wish to speak this morning. Wherever you live and at whatever point in age or experience you find yourself, I declare that God has, through His only begotten Son, lifted the famine of which Amos spoke. 
I testify that the Lord Jesus Christ is the bread of life and a well of living water springing up unto eternal life. I declare to those who are members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and especially to those who are not, that our Heavenly Father and His beloved firstborn Son did appear to the boy prophet Joseph Smith and restored light and life, hope and direction to a wandering world, a world filled with those who wonder, where is hope? Where is peace? What path should I follow? Which way should I go? Now, regardless of past paths taken or not taken, we wish to offer you this morning the way, the truth, the life. We invite you to join in the adventure of the earliest disciples of Christ who also yearned for the bread of life, those who did not go back but who came to Him and stayed with Him and who recognized that for safety and salvation there was no other to whom they could ever go. You'll recall that when Andrew and another disciple, probably John, first heard Christ speak, they were so moved and attracted to Jesus that they followed Him as He left the crowd. Sensing that He was being pursued, Christ turned and asked the two men, What seek ye? Other translations render that simply, What do you want? They answered, Where dwellest thou, or where do you live? Christ said simply, Come and see. Just a short time later, he formally called Peter and other new apostles with the same spirit of invitation. To them he said, Come, follow me. It seems that the essence of our mortal journey and the answers to the most significant questions in life are distilled down to these two very brief elements in the opening scenes of the Savior's earthly ministry. One element is the question put to every one of us on this earth, What seek ye? What do you want? The second is His response to our answer, whatever that answer is. Whoever we are and whatever we reply, His response is always the same. Come, He says lovingly. Come follow me. Wherever you're going, first come and see what I do. See where and how I spend my time. Learn of me. Walk with me. Talk with me. Believe. Listen to me pray. In turn, you'll find answers to your own prayers. God will bring rest to your souls. Come, follow me. With one voice and one accord, we bear witness that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only way to satisfy ultimate spiritual hunger and slake definitive spiritual thirst. Only he who was so mortally wounded knows how to heal our modern wounds. Only one who was God and was with God can answer the deepest and most urgent questions of our soul. Only His almighty arms could have thrown open the prison gates of death that otherwise would have held us in bondage forever. Only on His triumphant shoulders can we ride to celestial glory if we will but choose through our faithfulness to do so. 
to those who may feel they have somehow forfeited their place at the table of the Lord, we say again with the prophet Joseph Smith that God has a forgiving disposition, that Christ is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, is long-suffering and full of goodness. I've always loved that when Matthew records Jesus' great injunction, Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect, Luke adds the Savior's additional commentary, Be ye therefore merciful, as your Father also is merciful, as if to suggest that mercy is at least a beginning synonym for the perfection God has and for which all of us must strive. Mercy, with its sister virtue forgiveness, is at the very heart of the atonement of Jesus Christ and the eternal plan of salvation. Everything in the gospel teaches us that we can change if we need to, that we can be helped if we truly want it, that we can be made whole whatever the problems of the past. Now, if you feel too spiritually maimed to come to the feast, please realize that the church is not a monastery for perfect people, though all of us ought to be striving on the road to godliness. No, at least one aspect of the church is more like a hospital or an aid station provided for those who are ill and want to get well, where one can get an infusion of spiritual nutrition and a supply of sustaining water in order to keep on climbing. In spite of life's tribulations and as fearful as some of our prospects are, I testify that there is help for the journey. There is the bread of eternal life and the well of living water. Christ has overcome the world. He's overcome our world. And His gift to us is peace now and exaltation in the world to come. Our fundamental requirement is to have faith in Him and follow Him always. When He bids us to walk in His way and by His light, it is because He has walked this way before us, and He's made it safe for our travel here. He knows where the sharp stones and the stumbling blocks lay hidden and where thorns and thistles are the most severe. He knows where the path is perilous. And he knows which way to go when the road forks and nightfall comes. He knows all this, as Alma says in the Book of Mormon, because he has suffered pains and afflictions and temptations of every kind, that he may know how to succor his people according to their infirmities. To succor means to run to. I testify that in my fears and in my infirmities, the Savior has surely run to me. I will never be able to thank Him enough for such personal kindness and loving care. President George Q. Cannon said once, No matter how serious the trial, how deep the distress, how great the affliction, God will never desert us. He never has and He never will. He cannot do it. It is against His character to do so. He is an unchangeable being. He will stand by us. 
We may pass through the fiery furnace. We may pass through deep waters. But we shall not be consumed nor overwhelmed. We shall emerge from all these trials and difficulties the better and the purer for them if we only trust in God and keep His commandments. Close quote. Those who will receive the Lord Jesus Christ as the source of their salvation will always lie down in green pastures, no matter how barren and bleak the winter has been. And the waters of their refreshment will always be still waters, no matter how turbulent the storms of life. In walking His path of righteousness, our souls will be forever restored. And though that path may for us, as it did for Him, lead through the very valley of the shadow of death, yet we will fear no evil. The rod of His priesthood and the staff of His Spirit will always comfort us. And when we hunger and thirst in the effort, He will prepare a veritable feast before us, a table spread even in the presence of our enemies, contemporary enemies, which might include fear or family worries, sickness or personal sorrow of a hundred different kinds. In a crowning act of compassion at such a supper, He anoints our head with oil and administers a blessing of strength to our soul. Our cup runneth over with His kindness and our tears runneth over with His joy. We weep to know that such goodness and mercy shall follow us all the days of our life, and that we will, if we desire it, dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I pray this morning that all who are hungering and thirsting and sometimes wandering will hear this invitation from Him who is the bread of life, the fountain of living water, the good shepherd of us all, the Son of God. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and you shall find rest unto your souls. Truly he does fill the hungry with good things, as his own mother Mary testified. Come and feast at the temple, table of the Lord in what I testify to be his true and living church, led by a true and living prophet, President Gordon B. Hinckley, whom it is now our pleasure to hear. I pray for these blessings and bear witness of these truths in the sacred and holy name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.